Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. Hamilton counselors rejecting a proposed bi-weekly garbage pickup. We speak with counselor J.P. Danko. Our monthly town hall with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gertz focusing on a variety of issues, including some recent shootings in the community. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Despite staring at a potential 5.5% tax increase next year, Hamilton City Councilors are taking one potential cost-saving measure off the table. You won't have to worry about bi-weekly garbage collection anytime soon. No, the Public Works Committee voting yesterday 5-4 to not include a bi-weekly option when companies are asked to submit their Hamilton garbage pickup proposals. Ward 8 Councilor John Paul Danko proposed the idea to look at the cost analysis of picking up garbage every couple of weeks while keeping the weekly blue box and green bin collection. And Councillor Danko joins us on the program this morning. Good morning, JP. How are you? Good morning. I'm pretty good. Uh, thanks for joining us today. So this, to me, seemed like a good idea to at least look at the cost of what bi-weekly versus weekly garbage collection would uh, present to us. And I was, uh, obviously, you were thinking the same thing. I'm disappointed that uh, the majority of councillors on the Public Works Committee decided to turn their backs on a potential of $21 million in savings. Uh, Those are direct levy savings that would come right off of property taxes and uh, an additional $63 million uh, worth of landfill space that would potentially save us as a municipality down the road. Um, Without any real discussion about the policy or the issue, it was simply... Uh, really, the discussion was, this is garbage, and we don't want to talk about it, so we're not even going to look at this uh, this option. So there was no real reasoning in turning it down? Well, there was some discussion about, you know, the some of the issues that are associated with bi-weekly collection of landfill waste. Um, but essentially what it came down to is um, waste collection and garbage is uh, is an issue that we're as a council I, I guess we're not willing to have an open and honest discussion about and that's all the motion was is was to go and put both options out to tender get the pr- prices back um, so there's no speculation no um, no uncertainty about the actual savings and then make a decision whether the savings are worth the you know the change in service and if you think about it, for most residents of, of Hamilton, if they truly think about what they put out to the curb each week, um, the landfill waste collection is a very small portion of that. So for the vast majority of households in, the ha- in Hamilton, this would have no impact on them whatsoever. So, you know, to me, that seemed a pretty, pretty obvious uh, potential savings. You know, if you're talking about $20 million worth of savings over the term of the contract for uh, a service change that most people won't even notice. Um, it seems pretty obvious that we should at least consider that. I guess the impact to homeowners, or at least um, uh, those in homes as opposed to condos and apartments who really don't, uh, you know, uh, lift their weight or pull their own weight in terms of garbage and, and waste collection because there's so many other opportunities there. But for single-family homeowners, I guess the gripe is, you know, I uh, my taxes are high enough already. Why do I have to have my garbage stinking uh, for a couple of weeks? Yeah, and it's an, it's an interesting juxtaposition there where people are concerned about how much their taxes cost. And, you know, people constantly ask, okay, you know, why are my taxes so high? So in this case, this is 
an op- was an opportunity to save a significant amount um, that would come directly off of property taxes, um, you know, to, to bring those taxes down. And like I said, uh, the change in service, it's not a reduction in service because it would have gone from one bin every week as it is now to two bins every two weeks. So same, you know, service is just a slight change that most people wouldn't even notice. Well, I'm supportive of the idea. My parents had lived in Brampton for nearly 35 years. They recently, uh, maybe three, four, five years ago, switched to biweekly collection. Um, they really didn't have an issue with it, and, uh, and and life went on. And I understand that Burlington and Niagara also have biweekly collection. Well, almost all of our comparator municipalities already have biweekly collection. And City of Ottawa, Peel, Toronto, Waterloo, um, Ottawa, most recently, the regional municipality, Niagara. Um, so we're <clears throat> we're one of the last municipalities left that still collect the landfill waste stream every week. And by the end of this contract, I'm sure we're going to be the only municipality left that still does that. So this is not exactly, um, you know, groundbreaking. Uh, but to your point earlier about the multi-residential and, uh, you know, the collection there in diversion, I, I think that is a whole separate issue. And we can handle both, at, or we could have handled both at the same time. Another one is restaurants and uh, especially fast food restaurants with the amount of waste and single-use plastics that they put out. These are all different waste management issues. And as a municipality, I think we have a duty to taxpayers to, you know, to do more than one thing. And we could have addressed all of these. But, you know, as it turns out, um, Public Works Committee decided that they didn't want to have that conversation. Uh, and the next tender is going to last until, or at least the contract's going to last until 2028, right? That's right. So this decision um, binds the rest of this term of council it binds the next term of council and the first year of the following term of council after that. So this is a long-term uh, decision that, we, that we're making today. There was another issue at uh, Public Works yesterday. I had to deal with uh, the lead water pipe issue in Hamilton, and apparently the cost to replace all these pipes is uh, a pretty penny. It's a lot of money. It is, and, and lead pipes in our in our municipal drinking water systems is a huge problem for for all older cities, um, Hamilton being one. So most of the, the lower city and a good portion of the mountain um, where I live included uh, has lead service pipes, and it's 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 something that our you know Hamilton Water takes extremely seriously. Last year they implemented a orthophosphate lead reduction program which is um, an additive to the water that binds to the lead in the pipes and produces a protective coating. So it reduces the amount of lead that gets dissolved into the water that goes into people's homes and drinking water. And it's been proven in the presentation yesterday to be very effective. Um, But the report to actually replace the city portion of all the lead services in Hamilton, I think there's about 20,000 of them, um, the estimate was $103 million over 25 years. And that doesn't even solve the problem because that still leaves the lead portion of the service on private property. So then you'd have to have residents uh, investing two to $5,000 a piece to replace their portion of the lead service line. So it's it's a significant challenge for old municipalities like Hamilton. So the city's looking at about $4 million a year for the next 25 years, basically. If we were to do that, but uh, the city of Hamilton has decided that we're going to, you know, keep going with the orthophosphate 
uh, lead reduction program as an alternative. Instead of actually digging up and replacing these lead pipes because of just the logistics and the challenge of digging up all the roads and people's front lawns as well. I mean, it's huge. Um, So the orthophosphate program has has been proven very effective in in reducing lead levels. And really, at the end of the day, that's the goal, is to get the dissolved lead, the lead level, out of our drinking water system. I know there was a program, and I think it still exists in Hamilton, uh, for the backwater flow valve. Is there also a rebate program for lead pipe issues? Yes, the the city um, has a. It's not a rebate program, but it's a it's a low cost loan program. So if homeowners want to replace their lead service, um, they there is a, there is a loan available for them to do that. And also, if you're not sure um, if you're a homeowner, and you're not sure if you have a lead pipe or not, um, just call into the city, and we can you know look up what your address says on a map and let you know if you have a lead service. And we can also let you know if your lead service has been replaced at some time in the past. Like I know when I moved into my house, is one of the first things I did is re- replace the lead service. Um, so the the city has records of all of that. Should residents be concerned about this? I don't think so. Um, like I said, the the orthophosphate program is is proven proven to be very effective. Um, if you do have a lead service and you are concerned about it, uh, we recommend, the city recommends that uh, just first thing in the morning, if you flush your toilet or run the tap for a few minutes, that basically flushes all of the, the dissolved lead that could be sitting in your pipes. And it's not, it's a good idea to do that even if you have an older home, even if you've had your lead service replaced, because a lot of the solder that would be in your copper piping and in your fixtures um, up until pretty recently, actually, would still have a component of lead in it. So there are other sources of lead within the drinking water system that's not from the the, uh, the municipal service. So it's it's not a bad idea just to, you know, first thing in the morning, you know, flush your drinking water out a little bit before you have a drink. And the, the other option is to get a, a filter. So there's lots of filters available, uh, readily available, that will... Uh, filter lead out of your drinking water and other contaminants as well. Uh, good tip. Uh, w- one last question on the, the biweekly garbage issue. I know it still has to be ratified by City Council. Do you expect any last-minute change there? Well, I'm going to have a, a chat with uh, a few councillors who have been active on on our budgets and trying to get our costs down and, and see what their thoughts on, are on it. Um, I'm not sure if we would have the votes at council to uh, to resurrect this or not, but I'm certainly going to take a look at that as an option. John Paul, appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me on, Rick. There's Councillor John Paul Danko, Ward 8 in the city of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As always, it's that time of the month. Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert joining us in studio for his monthly town hall. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Rick, and thanks for subbing in for Bill. I think he's off to the tight cats. He yeah. is off to Calgary. Uh, Going to enjoy Grey Cup week, which he usually does, uh, and uh, in a couple of weeks' time, it'll be here. Yep. That, that should be exciting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we have a number of topics we're going to get to. Maybe we'll start with the opioid emergency. Public Health uh, declaring yesterday that Hamilton has an opioid emergency, an opioid crisis in this town. A number of measures are being undertaken. How is Hamilton Police assisting in the four pillars that Dr. Elizabeth Richardson uh, mentioned uh, just before the news at 10? Yeah, we belong to the opioid roundtable since inception. And uh, with the four pillars, as you know, social justice is the one we're most involved in. But there's the other three as well. Uh, but as you know, as a 
approach to this issue. Uh, we certainly believe in prevention, harm reduction, and avoidance, particularly with addiction issues. But uh, on our end of it, we really get into, and particularly with fentanyl and opioids, is the distribution of drugs that are deadly. Uh, so we continue on the enforcement end of it. But certainly, I think we've been pretty progressive in terms of alternate dispositions for people who are uh, facing addictions. And I've got to, you know, do a shout at the Justice Agro and all her work in the uh, drug treatment court. Uh, but again, it's kind of a firm but fair policy by Justice Agro, you know, abide by the conditions she sets or, you know, there are repercussions. So kind of the whole dilemma, so to speak, is often when we get involved and, you know, again, we want to do harm reduction first. Uh, you've got the Good Samaritan Act for people who are helping out people who might be suffering from or administering naloxone as opposed to kind of just deserting that person. So there's no kind of criminal implications there. Now, if you happen to have two keys of Coke at the at the residence and we've got a different... Different story. But, you know, primarily want to make sure those people get, um, and of course we carry naloxone too now, uh, whether it's EMS ourselves or self-administered by those uh, maybe working in concert when they're using drugs. I mean, I go back to kind of the comments I made with Dr. Richardson about three years ago, and two of the key messages were don't use alone and know your dealer. Uh, The problem with knowing your dealer these days is the introduction of things like fentanyl, to the other drugs that, um, and I remember asking a, um, one of our frontline officers, I said, why would somebody want that? And they said, well, it's the extra kick it gives. And I'm thinking, that's a lot of risk for really not knowing the quantity, what can happen. We know uh, the severe effects of fentanyl and carfentanil beyond that. And then whatever else is added to that. So social justice is our end of it. The enforcement is a big piece, but harm reduction and uh, making sure somebody gets to treatment, it's its pretty multifaceted. Uh, Dr. Richardson spoke of collaboration on a uh, municipal and certainly a provincial level. Uh, when it comes to police forces collaborating, uh, are there best practices being shared? What's going on at a, at a police level? Well, it's more of the discussion, but I think what has to happen, and because uh, most um, issues are local, is that local uh, cooperation, whether it's through addictions counseling, whether it's coroner being involved, the crown attorney. I asked that both the coroner and crown attorney be included at that opioid roundtable because they have much to offer as well. I do know that Dr. Dirk Hoyer has shared a lot of his issues when we're at OACP in terms of studying what happened out west, studying what is happening here. He obviously has a mandate for those deaths and looking at prevention. And then as I say, it's that local concerted effort through the partners. And I do like the four pillar strategy for what's the best approach. It's not, you know, one approach to solve everything. We do know that an enforcement approach alone does not work. It really has to be all all those things working in concert. We know that uh, even touching, uh, coming into contact with fentanyl, carfentanil is, is, can be deadly at times. Uh, What sort of training has been instituted at the police level to make sure that, you know, officers attending these scenes are safe? Well, we've been looking at this for a while and and personal protective equipment like uh, proper gloves. And of course, we've upgraded the gloves because the latex gloves may have had some porosity in certain circumstances or transfer. So some of it through policy, some of it is through training, some of it is through specialized handling. And think back to the meth labs that we were dealing with. You're really looking at hazardous material treatment when our officers respond to those calls. Then prior to that, you were looking at drug grows where you've got electrical equipment that's been hardwired in, sometimes right to the direct source outside the building. I'm not doing that because I know the amps that are involved and it's not the volts, it's the amps that kill you. So you got to know what you're doing from an electrician perspective. But when we respond to those calls, we're also cognizant that some of them are booby-trapped where uh, you may have... uh, 
rips by other parties, well, we've got all kinds of issues. So uh, normally the, the front line, you know, contain it, uh, have the specialists come in so with the proper training. So we have uh, training, whether it's meth lab uh, deconstruction, whether it's the handling of um, uh, opioids in the first place, uh, our proper venting within our drug control rooms, and we've upgraded all those facilities, uh, and then personal protective equipment, whether it's an N95 mask and proper gloves just to begin with. And of course, you know, if you don't know what it is, don't be, uh, you still see it in the movies, you know, person punctures the cocaine thing and then rubs it against their gums like okay, we don't do that. Um, even if you were drug enforcement, you'd never recommend that. Right. And uh, so, you know, something as simple as that, but uh, it is complex in terms of how we handle stuff. Uh, let's move to uh, body-worn cameras. I know this is an issue that's been uh, in the news and obviously up for discussion at the police services board level for a number of years. Uh, the latest is, well, we, we're, we're still not employing these devices. Correct. And what we've been doing is, uh, Toronto's been a leader in this, but there's many other Canadian uh, services who've either deployed on a pilot basis, just in traffic branch alone, some service-wide, but usually it's smaller services. As you know, the RCMP has opted not to do it. Uh, there is not money in funding either at the provincial level or federal level for this initiative, which means the taxpayer ba- bears it directly. And again, in, in terms of costs, it's largely not the cameras up front. It's all the storage of that, the redaction, the disclosure. So let's just talk about a traffic situation. Let's say we issue between fifty and 70,000 tickets and each one of those was recorded. That means one, you've got to store it. Two, you've got to retain it for a set period of time. You've got to look at the appeal process and how long that will be. Then you've got to disclose it for the courts. Both the Crown and Defence have to have access to that and have the technology to deal with it. That's just one snippet. Where you deploy service-wide, you could have everything from body-worn cameras being taped inside a private residence. Let's say you go to domestic and you arrest an offender at the scene. Well, you would turn on the camera. You've got redaction, disclosure, storage issues again with that. And depending on the volume that you um, intake, depending on how deploy it, and of course there's policy issues, there's legal issues, it's extremely complex. <clears throat> if you take it back to the source, which was why were they deploying them in the first place, it was to um, record the incidents you have, and it's only one perspective, I've talked about this at the board meeting, it's one perspective unlike um, movies and things you see where you have a number of cuts, and again I was talking about the editing and the process, if you actually just watch either a TV production or a movie, Look how often the scene changes. Is it an up-close camera? Is it a distance camera? So the proliferation of cameras um, publicly, whether it's institutional cameras, um, and we use them all the time, personal cameras, somebody uses their phone, often we do have video evidence of many, many scenes. I mean, most recently we just released uh, the video camera for the shooter at Sheila's place just the other night. And you've got, I mean, it's pretty sad state when you have people running by and you can see the victim's feet in the camera laying on the ground as people just leave. Um, That's a whole other discussion, but we rely on those cameras. Um, It's not uh, a panacea for everything. It is costly. And in terms of the accountability, we take no issue with that. Uh, We think there's many mechanisms for that accountability and it is a complex thing. So very costly. Um, We haven't seen anything definitive across the Canadian context. If you see the most recent report that we uh, was done by Sergeant Moore, um, he does academic research on it. We're looking for standardization metrics 
in the Canadian context, there's really nothing definitive yet that says it does exactly what it was supposed to do. And in the American context, that's again, different again. But we've been tracking that, looking at the efficacy, does it do what it was intended to do? And there were equipment issues originally with, uh, particularly in a Canadian context. And I remember this from VHS tapes with our in-car video, you know, uh, very cold climate, you know, will you have uh, battery life for all the things that you need? So lots of considerations in this. We do that report on an annual basis to brief the board, and we're watching the other jurisdictions to see if it's going to achieve what it's meant to achieve. Uh, last uh, week when the, uh, the the news was presented that, uh, you know, the, the body-worn cameras weren't going to be uh, um, uh, offered or accepted by Hamilton Police, uh, Scott Radley uh, here on CHML chatted with uh, uh, Clint Tulin, the um, president of the Hamilton Police Association, yep. and from a membership perspective, uh, he said that they'd be willing to wear the body cameras, so is it nice to know that if they do come about, at least you'll have, you know, acceptance from the ranks? Yeah, and I think generally it will be. We know there's scrutiny. We know there's, uh, I mean, we do this in training now consider that there's a camera running all the time right because all somebody has to do is turn their phone on and now you have a video recording of the event um the one that they referred to was the mark morelli incident if you recall uh, about three years ago where he's arresting a person Mm -hmm. and he's explaining to the camera what's happening as he's doing it which you know you got to look at officer safety there too um (laughs) you still got to handle uh what's going on in front of you and it's great to do those kind of commentaries but you know there's certainly an assumption whether it's a a commercial business that has the camera running that we're always under scrutiny particularly in a public place so i don't think there's an aversion that way we just want to make sure it does what it's intended to do one and then two the deliberation process whether it's in the courts or whether it's through the oiprd which is our public complaint uh, system or an siu um, that you know there's many many sources for that evidence and information mm-hmm. there's still some gray area with the body cams as well though i mean we look at the sammy yatim video and, and yes, yes uh, you know an officer was charged in that case uh, but there's still some gray area in terms of you know how that situation was approached Yeah, and one of the issues is um, uh, analyzing the threat by the officer involved is going to see it from their perspective. Right. So what did they actually see? What were the the things that were going on? What's the immediate threat? Uh, We've certainly seen videotape from down south, uh, you know, where other things are, uh, there was one from Toronto, I believe, actually, where the person draws their phone out and imitates a handgun. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the officer was able to recognize it and didn't use any force on that. But, you know, all those circumstances is from the perception of the person involved and the camera may or may not carry that. Even if you have a body-worn camera, let's say your body is canted. So you're looking right, but it's moving more central. It may not see exactly what you see. And then even if the camera exceeds human abilities, then the camera is seeing more than you can physically see. Right. You know, the pixelation, the resolution, all those things. So this is a very interesting area of law, I think. And uh, at the end of the day, it has to be tested out when we reach those stages, either before the courts or here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to open up the lines here in a couple minutes. Uh, if you have a question for uh, Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gertz, you can certainly call in at 905-645-3221. That's 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You can also email rick at 900chml.com or send us a tweet at am900chml. You wanted to talk about uh, some shootings in town. Uh, those uh, continue to persist. Uh, you mentioned one uh, where we have some surveillance video as well, and we're trying to catch uh, the killer in this case. Yeah, and as we know, that's a third shooting at that location in two years. So, you know, one of the 
what are the dynamics that lead to that one. And then, of course, we analyze all the shootings to look at are there similarities in the, the MO, the modus operandi, you know, how things were done. Are there, and, and we've seen it, it's definitely connected to the drug trade. It is definitely connected uh, in the broader term, not every time, uh, to those issues. So we know um, the rise of gun prevalence is affecting North America, particularly Canada, uh, but has in the States for years. Um, gang issues, um, drug issues, we always look to those factors. And, you know, right back to the source, why are, in some cases, youth choosing to use that as opposed to alternate methods? Um, so, you know, there's an education perspective. There's an anti-gang strategy. And I know that John Howard, for example, was doing tremendous work in that area for years. Um, it really has to be multifaceted to combat that as well. And then straight enforcement, too. We have a question uh, from Bill, who's called into the program. Hey, Bill, you want to ask uh, a question regarding shootings? Uh, why are so many people being killed by the cops? Why are they, especially the, a lot of people are mental on drugs, and uh, there's enough shootings in this city where the cops are doing it too. They're supposed to uh, protect the public, you know. Maybe their cameras should be on them to, to see what they're doing, you know. Do those uh, cops that, are, that shoot people, do they resign or something or what? How can they live like that, you know? Uh, it's terrible. It's awful. That's what it is. So to answer your last question, and, and I've known a number of officers involved in fatal shootings. They are never the same. Uh, we do not sign up to kill people. We, we sign up to help people. Uh, in terms of the training for de-escalation, our use of uh, conducted energy weapons now is an alternative strategy. Uh, we do do training on mental health. But again, uh, that presupposes in terms of the final outcome that the officer knew all those things, part of the engagement with the individual involved. And if someone is running at you with a knife over their head, um, you have to make a decision in that split second about what you're going to do and what the risks are that are involved. Uh, so, one, we don't take this lightly. Two, uh, it has an effect on everybody involved, not least of which is the officer, but we definitely know it's not the outcome we want. We continue to do training on both de-escalation and uh, one of the recent introductions is around don't use a use of force at all. Disengagement is all also uh, one of the options that you can do. However, um, some of the suggestions most recently are, well, you could just let uh, that uh, person uh, enter with some other people, place them at risk, and then let things proceed and see how it turned out. Uh, you've got to make a decision at the point of the event. Uh, is that a wise decision to now create a hostage situation with somebody who may or may not be armed? Relative to interactions at night, and I just talked about it in terms of what we've seen people do, um, you don't know the weapon they may or may not have. Uh, let's just look at the El Hasnawi shooting, which is not a police shooting, but small caliber twenty-two handgun that really almost fits within your hand. So these are not easy decisions. Our members do take it seriously. We take it seriously where we can de-escalate. And I, I've got to tell you, I see almost on a daily basis, which is not reported to the media, de-escalation with people with mental health issues. They will either state they're going to harm themselves or kill somebody else, and we have them successfully resolved. It is a handful. It is tragic. 
um, and nobody wants that outcome. But we do see many, many successful interventions where nobody is harmed. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. It's the monthly town hall that uh, he uh, graces us with his presence uh, once a month, and we really appreciate it because uh, you know this is a you know a good conversation to have with uh, the chief of police. So it's well uh, well appreciated. Never any shortage of issues. This is true too, and uh, one of those issues is uh, uh, shootings in the community. And Jeff has called into the program, and you can too at nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred. Jeff has called in to talk about shootings as well. Jeff, hello. Hi. Go ahead with your question. Well, I have more of a comment than a question. I was listening to the first caller saying what he said, and I am of the firm belief that uh, police get the right to go home safely as well. I know they go through a tremendous amount of training to de-escalate. I've seen it in action. They do a great job with uh, the mental health community and the uh, people that are they it's not clear whether it's a mental health issue or whether it's a drug issue but they do a tremendous job of uh keeping them safe from harming themselves or others from what i can tell but ultimately they have the right to go home safely to their own families and if they feel threatened then they are well trained to 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 escalate it to the next level to keep themselves safe whether it's Using the tasers, the, the uh, uh, or or a baton, or or just uh, using physical force to control a, a, a person who is out of control. I, I've I've seen them do all all of them, uh, not a baton, but I've seen them the the, the electrical force. I've seen them do physical uh, control, and they do it uh, at a minimal effort. They they don't jump all over somebody unless there's a, a, a need to provide a safe uh, environment. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the police and the training they go through, and I, I don't understand why uh, people jump all over them when they are only human. Hey, Jeff, really appreciate the call. Thanks for chiming in. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely, uh, Jeff, you raised a, a good point here. And if we can get through it with just talking, we'll do that. Uh, if it requires force, of course, it is commensurate to whatever the particular threat is. And keeping in mind, it's not just our members themselves. It can be members of the public that are at risk, too. So it's not an easy thing. Uh, we want uh, everybody to go home safe, including, uh, in some cases, the client or the offender. Uh, that is the disposition we want. But, of course, uh, with today's uh, what is happening, and, and you can see the prevalence of gun, we're looking at two kinds. Coin, or two sides of the coin, uh, one around uh, those who may have guns, and we know that they're more prevalent. So these are not easy decisions. Uh, we do want people to who walk away safely, including our own members, and I'm sure our members appreciate, I do, your comments today. Uh, he also mentioned uh, baton. Hamilton Police don't have a baton, do they? We have an ass baton. It is not used that often. Okay. And when the conducted energy weapon was implemented, um, and I used to read as when I was deputy of operations, all the use of force reports, um, thankfully, often all you have to do is display it and you'll get compliance. Mm-hmm. In that case, nobody gets shocked. Uh, you don't have them incapacitated and you get compliance, like I say. Uh, but sometimes it is administered. It's not always effective either. Uh, it depends on where the probes enter. If people have bulky winter clothing, particularly now. Right. There's lots of dynamics in that. So uh, uh, the old um, application of force, but we do have many times just open hand techniques. 
um, sometimes closed. Uh, but predominantly, if we can keep time and distance, that's what you want to do. If the conducted energy weapon does that, and you'll see in many of the interactions, you have one member use the conducted energy weapon. If there is a knife, of course, that's lethal force. You may have another with a handgun. Um, but uh, it all depends on the situation, proximity. There's so many factors that enter into this. Uh, but again, de-escalation, if we can have a good outcome, and Jeff certainly cited them, that's what we want. If you have a question for Chief Gert, you can call us at 905 645 221 star 9900 on your cell. You can email rick at 900chml.com or send us a tweet at am900chml. Ricky has called into the program and you have a question about body cameras. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, more, more of a comment than a question. Chief, my name is Ricky Jeremiah. probably read my story last year because I had an a incident with the Hamilton police. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it became a court scene, and we actually won the case uh, against the police in Hamilton. Because they, they, they brutally beat me up on the street because I simply asked the officer why he needed my license when he asked me for my driver's license. And he took t- 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 that to a totally different level to the point where I was on the ground. Well, uh, like I say, he probably read my story because it was all over the news. So... I listen to the program and I hear people make it all different. But until you've been in the situation yourself, it's hard to say that, that yes, the police is right or the other person is wrong. Because for me personally right now, I'm, I'm talking to you from a broken heart still, even if it's six years ago that happened to me. Because what happened to me really was not supposed to happen. I believe if the police was wearing a body camera, it would have been totally different that night when they did what they did to me. And you also said that there is always people with cameras and, and phone. That is true. In my case, um, Chief, the gentleman who was with me in my car, the police literally told him he's not going to use his phone to take pictures or to record what, 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 they, what they were doing. So it doesn't always work with phone. We, we are in a city where I know we need police. And listen, um, Chief, I am 100% for policing because there's a lot of bad people on the street. 100% for policing. But I do believe the police then need to know when and what situation deserve um, 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 more force or, or less force. And in my case, they certainly did not do right by me at all, 100%. And the court themselves says that the judge said that the police, the police operated below the standard of policing. Yeah, so thanks for the comments, and as you know, Thank you, Ricky. I, I think one of the key pieces you've mentioned here is accountability, which I firmly believe in. Uh, just for clarity, if somebody pulls out a camera in a public place, you are not prohibited from doing so. You can do so. Um, there's no prohibition against that. So just for clarity for our listeners. And, you know, the accountability mechanisms, particularly in Canada and Ontario, we have many of them. I believe in them because when we do act improperly, and you've certainly provided the context for that, then we are accountable and we will be held accountable. So in terms of body-worn cameras, I have no aversion to that. Um, We rely on public trust, and when our members step outside the parameters, then they need to be held accountable. On the other end of it, uh, as you say, um, you know, there's witnesses, all the rest in your case, and, and I can't comment on the specific case, but when you are successful before the courts, that to me speaks to the integrity of the system because uh, the courts do work independently from the police, they should, and they need to hold our account- members accountable, whether it's uh, in criminal courts or whether it's in civil courts or whether it's in hearing 
Um, and as you know, um, discipline falls clearly under me. I take it extremely seriously. And whether whatever the nature of the allegation, I do take seriously. And we do act on it. And we do hold our members accountable. So you've provided the context for that. I think you raised some very good points. I think it's. Uh, I think we all understand as residents of this uh, community, of any community really, you know, we should understand that Hamilton police, police officers in general, they're not robots. They might have a bad day. They might step over the line or do something that they shouldn't. Uh, and obviously there's penalties for that too. Well, definitely. And I mean, we've seen uh, in some cases, and you know, none of us are proud of it, where we've had criminal allegations substantiated before the courts. I, as much as anybody, want that outcome and the member held accountable if they're breaching the criminal code. Mm-hmm. Uh, we swear an oath of office. If you go beyond that, uh, it stigmatizes all of us and it breaches public trust. So um, I'm not happy about it because uh, nobody wants that outcome, but we will hold our members accountable and whatever the particular uh, court of jurisdiction is, um, they need to be held accountable. 905-645-3221, star 9900 is uh, the numbers to call if you want to chime in on uh, today's monthly town hall with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. Uh, you can also email rick at 900chml.com or on Twitter at am900chml. Sandra has called into the program. And Sandra, you have a question about panhandlers. Yes, I do. And I talked to on uh, Bill Kelly last weekend or weekend, whatever, um, uh, and the mayor was on, and I said the panhandlers are aggressive. Um, they're full of BS. You can't be hungry in Hamilton. You really can't. In, in Lower Hamilton, there are, I can name five places where you can get something to eat for free. Um, and if you're broke, I don't know, I, I can't help you with that. But <clears throat> there are panhandlers that are aggressive, and... The police are really good. A certain police officer, I won't name him, um, are really aggressive at me at Vic Park having a discreet uh, beer uh, while watching a baseball game or whatever. I get it. It's illegal. But I'm not um, offending anyone in the immediate uh, vicinity. However, the panhandlers have absolutely no problem coming right up to me. And between King and Dundurn and Jackson Square, there are the same five panhandlers, one of whom lives in my building and claims he's broke, hungry, homeless. So uh, what I'd like to see, and I noticed a little article in the Toronto Sun about a week ago in some city in British Columbia where they're actually, the police are actually ticketing the, uh, pan, the panhandler for vagrancy. I'd also like to see um, some kind of a bylaw enacted that if you're driving and you're not allowed to use your cell phone, why are you able to dig around in your little console to your right to find a toonie to hand over to the guy with a dog. I'll take your response off the air. Thank you. Thanks, Sandra. Thanks, Sandra. And thanks for the question. You've hit on a very complex issue, uh, both in terms of the courts. Let's start with vagrancy. That law was struck down a long time ago. 
Um, and it involved committal warrants, obviously, uh, for some people who were engaged in that conduct. Uh, the Safe Streets Act, which was introduced a number of years back, we do, in fact, hand out tickets for aggressive panhandling. And again, uh, you know, this is uh, both um, a social point of view. Uh, there's disparity in terms of what people think, um, and there's not uniformity in terms of what should be done. The other big piece, and we've had comments from the judiciary on this, is where you hand out ticket after ticket, uh, and the person has no means. I obviously heard what you said. You would take a contrary view that they could pay for the ticket, uh, but in many cases they can't. Then you've got, relative to our earlier comments, mental health issues, addictions issues, a whole realm of things. Uh, it is a complex issue. Our action officers do uh, hand out tickets under the Safe Streets Act for aggressive panhandling, particularly where people are stopped from walking or the person is assertive. Uh, in some cases, it may be um, may rise to the level of assault. Um, that can happen. So you got to look at it a case by case basis uh, relative to provincial bylaws that prohibit people from. I'm not really sure how you'd write that law where you can't scrounge around in your console for loose change. Um, but there's a traffic safety issue uh, which you didn't mention. Um, you know, regardless of your sentiment, what happens is when those people are weaving through the cars and it started first in Toronto, but now it's come here. Uh, they're at risk sometimes, and we actually had one panhandler get his foot run over. Uh, nobody wants to see that either. So, you know, to your your kind of comment about aiding them, so to speak, you may be placing them at risk too, particularly where they're in traffic. So, lots of issues. There isn't uh, consistency in how the public thinks this should be handled, uh, but I think there's consistency in terms of aggressive panhandling. As for consuming liquor out of residence, well, that is a law. It's a provincial law, and, you, you know, I can't tell you you can't or you shouldn't abide by it. My, my view would be you have to. If you want to change the law, then, you, of course, you have to petition the lawmakers to change that legislation, much like they did, for example, with marijuana. And uh, that has changed. But as it stands now, um, I ask you to be compliant with the law. <laughs> Are panhandlers allowed to be on a, a median in traffic? Because we're seeing a few of those. Yeah, there's no prohibition specifically against it. There are some uh, sections of Highway Traffic Act where you're interfering with the flow of traffic that can be um, laid against that person. But again, you're back to the whole uh, dilemma of does the person have the ability to pay? Right. Is it viewed as punitive? The courts have spoken to that. Uh, our action uh, officers, for example, um, and I'll call it the futility of handing out ticket after ticket. What our members are faced with was is pressure to solve this problem, which is not easily solved. And where you have mental health issues as well, sometimes people do not want to go to the places where they either provide shelter or food. It is a complex issue and uh, enforcement is not a singular approach. So for example, our social navigator works with a lot of these people to look at can they get them other services to keep them out of those uh, circumstances. And you talked about a member working with the person discreetly. We would look at that, and uh, our action officers are trained in that. And, of course, our social navigation uh, program is one of the few in Canada. But we're really looking at can we get them the assistance they need. Uh, before we run out of time, I, I want to get to the winter coat drive that yes. you guys are organizing as well. Yeah, and uh, obviously with people in need, and uh, uh, sometimes it's just uh, as simple as clothing. Uh, we will take donations at any of our stations. We will then set that up with uh, particular people who may need those. And we'll have racks where the coats are available that people can sort through and pick what they need. Could be hats, could be mittens, um, but certainly the coats. And just to keep people warm, it's a pretty fundamental right. And uh, we just like to assist the people where we can. Uh, any amount of goal in terms of how many coats you want to collect? 
Uh, as many as we get, we're happy to distribute to those who might need them. And then if there's surplus, of course, there's other agencies who can, where we've donated uh, so they can distribute through other outlets, not just us. So we work in concert with the community on this. Uh, obviously, again, with our social navigator, we meet a number of these people and let them know about it. And, uh, you know, it's that whole prevention piece. If you can keep somebody warm, if they choose not to go indoors, at least they might have a nice coat and mittens and gloves. I mean, the choice is theirs to use the shelters or not, but we'd like to see them warm. It's a great program. Um, uh, Ticats are playing in the Grey Cup Sunday night. Win or lose, there could be an explosion of excitement uh, or or despair. Uh, either way, how are Hamilton Police uh, preparing for this? So we're in talks already with the Tiger Cat organization to see where the celebrations may or may not uh, occur. Uh, chances are, and I can't speak to it definitively because I know the meetings are still happening, uh, but we'd like to see people kind of go to one place as opposed to uh, being all over the place, but we certainly can't stop them. Uh, but we normally prepare for celebrations at local bars where people like to watch it, certainly sports bars. Uh, if, in fact, uh, at the Tim Horton Stadium, they're going to have celebrations there, we will assist. Uh, but much like World Cup or other things, we have pre-plans around uh, the festivities. We we'll want people to have a good time. Obviously, drinking and driving is a huge issue like usual. Uh, so if you are going to, make those arrangements so that you're not driving if you're drinking. And, uh, you know, it'll be a great thing for the city if they, in fact, win. We just want people to celebrate uh uh, you know, safely, and if we can facilitate that, we will. Got one more question about uh, presenting ID, and this question comes from James. James, go ahead. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good, good morning. Um, I, just a quick question for you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I usually parked my car, walked downtown to the market and everything. When I got downtown, I had a constable approach me, said I looked like somebody they were looking for, and asked me for my ID. Do I need to present that at that time? Uh, and again, it depends on the situation. If they ha- and this is under the uh, Collection of Information uh, Act. In certain circumstances, prohibitions and duties. No, I did not aim that act, but that's what it's called. And under certain conditions, where we're investing in criminal offense and have lawful authority to ask, uh, then of course you would have to do that. Um, and usually, in my view, uh, it, it is a good idea. But you can certainly ask about what that would be. Uh, again, relative to the offense, I may or may not disclose that depending on what has happened because if I'm giving you the reasons for what might happen and it could be from break and enter, it could be from failed remain, it could be all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I, apparently I just looked like somebody that they were looking for, but I didn't have my ID at the time. Okay. What happens on what happens in that case? Well, you would offer up what your uh, name and date of birth, we can corroborate that. that. Yeah, which is fine, that. right? You, you're not required to carry, particularly where you're just walking, your ID with you. But it's usually a good idea, and, and we'll check on that and substantiate it, and hopefully the, the officer got back to you in terms of the outcome, whether you matched or not. Our problem with descriptions quite often is, uh, and relative to witnesses, we may have four or five items, and you may match those. Um, we used to talk about this with certain cars. You know, it's a black BMW. Well, we go out and patrol, now we see 57 BMWs, but we will look for more specific information that matches more closely to the individual. But at the same time, depending on what it is, let's say a shooting, then I may have to go with the, you know, three or four items that I have, particularly if you're in the vicinity. Oh, okay, perfect. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the question. Great question. And, uh, well, enjoy the uh, Grey Cup weekend. Uh, Hopefully it's a a positive party. Either way, uh, let's hope that people uh, stay safe. And uh, thanks for coming in once again. By all means, Rick, and thanks for subbing in for Bill. Anytime. And uh, really appreciate having the opportunity to go on the air for the town hall. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.